You are listening to the Maranatha Teachings Podcast, a ministry of Maranatha Church. Maranatha Church is a house church in coastal Virginia with members that span over four generations. Our Bible time together is both instructional and conversational. I'm the pastor and teacher, Nicholas Larum. Welcome to the Dialogue. This is Living in the Outpouring. The title of this message is Welcome to Corinth. This is the fourth in our series on Living in the Outpouring. And our goal is to move into the different pictures that Scripture gives us about life in the Spirit and how He empowers us to give testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ and carry us through the present age. So, why welcome to Corinth? You recall last time we, we talked about spiritual gift lists, mostly bouncing from the word uh, charisma or charismata and the different lists that are involved out of 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. And how usually these are taught in some sort of systematic grouping. So the manifestation gifts out of 1 Corinthians 12 are, are set forward in their own groupings and they're looked at as these are the signs of the Spirit for today. And then those listed in the latter part of chapter 12 have, at least the way that I've been taught them, have been looked at primarily as ministry-type gifts functioning inside of the church. And then you have the list from Ephesians that are referred to variously as ascension gifts or the fivefold ministry. And the church of Jesus Christ is fairly divided between the cessationist camp on the Protestant side, those who believe that once the canon was done, everything you read about in the Gospels and Acts about the miraculous and tongues and prophecy and apostles and prophets are no longer necessary because we have the Bible Obviously from the, I say obviously, from the Catholic or Orthodox side of the faith, they still talk about apostolic sees and apostolic authority. So they haven't given up on apostles, but aside from charismatics, most of Protestantism has. Uh, even caution, cautionary continuationists who, who believe the gifts are possible, you know, pretty much think that apostolic gifting is out. But those in Ephesians are apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Everybody's comfortable with evangelists and with pastors and somewhat with teachers. Well, those lists, even though we teach them systematically, are in each instance fairly uh, ad hoc or put together at the moment for the purposes involved in the moment. And the purposes involved in that moment are whatever issues that the Apostle was dealing with with the churches he was writing or the things he wanted to instruct those churches about. And Peter's list is probably the shortest. Speaking and serving covers a lot of ground. Right? So, why welcome to Corinth? Well, whenever you go into any kind of equipping or any kind of spiritual giftings type of territory, note how heavy-loaded the information out of Corinthians is. You have the nine manifestation gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 9, and then this mixture of ministries and gifts 
in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. You ever heard of the butterfly effect? <laughs> you know, the, the, different, the different consequences, the move of a butterfly's wing might send a cascade through all the earth in terms of different events that happen. It's kind of a, uh, a hyperbolic example of how small things make big changes, you know. Well, I'm calling this the Corinthian effect. It's, <laughs> it's a large thing that seems to set the dialogue, at least in Pentecostal and church traditions, and I keep telling you, in case you don't know, you're part of that. You've grown up in a church like that. Uh, most of us have been involved in, in a fellowship of that nature for decades now. And the Corinthian effect, you know, if we conflate manifestations, like prophecy, with ministries, like prophets, so if you take all that list, which is 30-some-odd entries, and, and you stick them all together, you might come up with like 19 distinct giftings out of that table. And understand that those listings aren't exhaustive or limiting. One way to think of it is almost ad-lib. Of course, under the direction of the Holy Spirit as he's writing, but they are the gifts that make sense for the arguments and instruction given at that point in time. And they're valid instruction, they're valid gifts, but they're not the only gifts. But if you put that entire table from you know, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4, you put them all together and you conflate things that I'm saying should really be conflated, ministries and gifts, you got 19 different gifts. Well, 1 Corinthians 12 alone enumerates 12 of them. That's over 60%. It's very difficult to have any kind of conversation about giftings of the Spirit or manifestation of the Spirit and not have 1 Corinthians 12 drive the conversation. 1 Corinthians 14 focuses on the use of currently the most controversial ones, tongues, interpretation of tongues, and prophecy. So now you have an entire chapter that is devoted to the expression of three primary gifts at least in, in the Corinthian setting. So, once again, you know, if you go to any kind of equipping seminar, say, for instance, a uh, spiritual gift seminar or exercising spiritual authority that uh, Liberating Ministries of Christ International does, Dale Size, that's just kind of like mothership course, uh, or any other number, number of courses, you just can't... There's no other place to go in Scripture to get this amount of information from. It drives the conversation. That's the Corinthian effect. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 thus become the default handbook for much of Pentecostal and charismatic expression. How do you know you've really been to a charismatic church? Well, what's the question? Were they speaking tongues there? <laughs> more importantly, do you speak tongues? Do you speak in tongues there? I mean, this becomes... This becomes like the litmus test of, are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? Well, do you speak in tongues? That's it. That's the question. Did you get your prayer language? And I'm, I'm here, I'm going to kind of show my hand, Lord willing, of, of discussions coming in the weeks to come, should the Lord tarry, that what we, what we do, yeah, what we do with, and when I say we, I mean those of us in a charismatic Pentecostal tradition and instructing others, what we do with 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 is about 180 degrees away from 
what Paul was endeavoring to do with the Corinthian congregation in his instruction in those chapters. I have personally been actively reading a higher level of scholarship on these chapters and these letters and this subject matter in Scripture, and I, I've had decades of, of instruction and, and presupposition pretty much plowed up by the plain reading of the text, by what the text itself says. It's humbling, <laughs> but it's also liberating. It's encouraging, and I trust it, that you find it encouraging and liberating and empowering as well, because the truth does what? It sets you free. It sets you free. And things that you take as truth that wind up not being so wind up binding you up in ways or making you blind in ways you weren't aware of. So, understanding these chapters, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, requires not only an understanding of the entire letter, 1 Corinthians, but also the church's cultural context. This is the church in Corinth. To the church in Corinth, that's who it's written to. And to get a, you know, any text out of context is a pretext. And the text context is as much its own literary context contained within inside the letter as its cultural context. Now, I was reminded today that when it comes to understanding any particular verse in Scripture or section of Scripture, we need to understand it first and foremost inside of its own literary unit, its own book. So, for instance, when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, their points of reference to what he wrote them primarily was what he wrote them. They couldn't, well, uh, did you go to page 2, chapter 2, verse 3? What did he say to the church in Rome? Give, give me that letter. So I could, there was no Romans to refer to. Well, well I, is that what happened on the day of Pentecost? Give me Luke's history. There was no Acts to refer to. Now, he quotes Isaiah. If they had opportunity to approach the scroll of Isaiah, they might have that as a reference point. And he ministered there for a while, which we'll get into. So they have at least the memory of his preaching and letters that Paul wrote that we don't have. This is correspondence. There are older people here that remember writing things and putting a stamp, but in case you haven't had correspondence of that nature, it's kind of like he sent an email and they sent the email back, and they went back and forth, and you had an email chain. Well, we don't have the full email chain. We have the third in a sequence of three in 1 Corinthians. So... We need to understand, the, I, I feel it's important for us to understand these things to, to really get a better understanding of the issues that are at stake, what the instructions from the Apostle are, and how it is that we are empowered by the Spirit to represent Jesus and bring salvation to the world. So, to that end, this is the biblical world, you know. Uh, terra firma ended somewhere here off the coast of Spain. <laughs> the understanding of the biblical writers did not account and did not take into consideration the Western Hemisphere, North America, Washington, D.C. 
These were outside of the purview of their understanding or knowledge. This was the world that they knew, and this is the world that they operated in. And we're going to focus on a particular area of the world that involved Paul's missionary journey. In particular, his second missionary journey, of which Corinth was a part. You see on the map, here we have Jerusalem and Judea. Okay, and remember, <coughs> Paul had been up here in Antioch of Syria. Can you all see Syria in there? Okay, Antioch is up there, you know, just west of Aleppo. Do you see, do you see Antioch there, Antioch of Syria? That's where, you know, that, that church is where you had apostles and, I mean, you had prophets and teachers and the Holy Spirit call, called out Barnabas and, and Saul for the work that he called them to. And Barnabas and Saul go on a missionary journey. And in that first missionary journey, concentrated primarily up here in, in Galatia, this, this portion of what we call Turkey now, you know, Anatolia. And they went and planted churches up there. Somewhere along in that missionary journey, John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, decides that this is just a bit too hard, and he abandons the mission and goes home. Paul and Barnabas get back. Paul looks to Barnabas and says, hey, let's go back through and check the churches out that we've planted, see how they're doing. Barnabas wants to take John Mark with him. Paul says, no way. Kid cut out on us. And the dispute between them was so sharp that they, they split company. This tells us that Church leaders in the Bible are not rarefied holy people with no interpersonal problems or differences of opinion. Barnabas was, was the one who paved the way for Saul to be accepted by the church in Jerusalem. This guy who had persecuted the church, it was Barnabas that brought Saul in from Tarsus to teach at Antioch. So we read the gospel and it's like, you know, Paul's out there, he goes to Damascus, gets kicked off the horse, sees Jesus, next thing you know, he's super apostle. No, he spends 14 years just living life and ministering elsewhere, and then gets called to Antioch and ministers in that context. They're worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit says, send these out. They do great work together. They come back, remember they come back in Acts 15, and they're part of the Jerusalem Council in terms of what God is doing amongst the Gentiles, this big decision as to whether or not Gentiles should be circumcised and, and be Jewish proselytes before they're, they're allowed to be part of the community of Messiah. And the decision is no, that this is God really making one body. So they have, they have this encouraging news to take back to their churches and they split company. So Paul winds up with Silas and eventually Timothy. And they go on a second missionary journey. And as they're ministering in Asia, and you can read about this in, in Acts 6. Well, let's, let's read some of this. And they went, um, this is Acts 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So here is instruction on how to be a witness for Christ by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, go unto all nations, right? Teaching them. 
And so they go. They have a plan. And Galatia and Phrygia, they're off the map here. I can go back. Let me go back. So you see Galatia on the map here. And the other region is right up in here in this Pisidia area. They want to go into this Roman region called Asia. I know how we think of Asia, but this is that Roman province or whatever called Asia. They want to go in there, but the Holy Spirit says, no, don't go there. So they go around. They go around. And when they had come into Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. So, again, Bithynia is right up here, you know, south of the Black Sea. I'm pointing here, but you all can see that on the map, right? And so they're circumventing because they're trying to go, and, and then Jesus says no. Here's another thing I want you to notice. Look what Luke, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, is doing. Just like in the Old Testament, Yahweh, invisible, Almighty God, is conflated with the angel of the Lord, the visible Yahweh, the word of the Lord that came, and it's Yahweh but not Yahweh. In the New Testament, you have this conflation of it's the Holy Spirit but the Spirit of Messiah. It's the Holy Spirit but the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit represents Jesus. This is the Spirit from Jesus. And so we see this conflation. There is a Christian word for God Almighty. It's called the Trinity. <laughs> that's, you know, we coined it. It's not in Scripture, but that's, that's, the, that's, that's the classification of the Christian God, if you will. The Holy Trinity. When they came from, up from Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So how, do we, how is it that we do evangelism? You have an open command from the Lord that says, go, speak. So you, it's not as if we're being presumptuous when we meet somebody or we're having a conversation with a friend or a co-worker it's not like, oh God, if you want me to speak the gospel to them, let, let me know. Tell me now if it's okay. I'll wait for your green light to speak the gospel. No. He said, speak. When we obey the general command to speak, then he adds additional information. What to say, when to say, who not to talk to. <laughs> I think this applies both in a, a strategic mission on this journey, if you follow this on the map, you can see, you know, that there's intellect behind this. There's reason behind it that says, okay, here's a map. Let's go here. Let's go here. They have a plan. And they're following their plan in obedience to the command of Jesus to go. And as they follow that, then he brings further wisdom and insight as to where to go and where not to go. Nope. Can't go there yet. Nope. Don't go there yet. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Verse 8, so passing by... Yeah, got to go by the Holy Spirit. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now I've got Troas circled. You see Troas on the map? Troas right there on the coast of the Aegean Sea, on the western edge there of that province of Asia. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. All right, so Macedonia is this region north 
and Achaia is the region south. So Macedonia, call that northern Greece, Achaia, southern Greece. I think those two now currently make up the modern nation of Greece. Macedonia, by the way, is where Philip of Macedon hailed from. Philip of Macedon put together an awesome army, and I believe he was the developer of the phalanx uh, form of fighting. And the phalanx form of fighting was this quadrant of men with lances. I think the lances were about 20 feet long. And what they would do is, you know, the front row would have out, and the back row behind them, and the back row behind them. So about every three feet, you had this row of lances that you had to come through as they pushed forward. It was a meat grinder. That was his development. Uh, and I, I think previous to that, there was a lot of, you know, just melee engagement. But this orderly arrangement of the phalanx coming through and these spears coming down and marching forward and pushing, pushing, push the man off the field, that was developed by Philip of Macedon, whose son was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great took his father's army and took over the known world. And that is why this whole region, that whole region of the Mediterranean, was Hellenized. That's why there was all this Greek culture in the areas of Israel, the Levant, you know, Turkey, all this area in Greece, Egypt, Okay, that's the history behind it. That's, well, Macedon, that's where he's going. Look at things coming full circle. You know, Greece, the, the empire of Greece, the prince of Grecia, out of, uh, I think, Daniel chapter 10 or Daniel 12, that was the prophecy of the uh, arising of Alexander the Great, and then all, this, all the, the four different kingdoms, the four different beasts that came out of that, right? In any event... He's in Troas. They have this dream. Man from Macedonia. Come, you know, Paul has this dream. Now watch what happens. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. Catch the next phrase. Concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is how it works in the body of Christ. Paul had a vision... And he spoke to his missionary companions. And they came to the conclusion that they were called to preach in Macedonia. Let me tell you what happens oftentimes in a charismatic, uh, quote, Pentecostal church, particularly a megachurch. The senior pastor, oftentimes referred to as the man of God, has the house, has the vision for the house. He's the one with the vision as to what the house does. And you are asked in this, in this arrangement to come under the vision of the senior leader, and, and in which case in today's world, at least in the past decade, it's been common to refer to that individual as an apostle. Obviously, since he's CEO of a mega, mega church, he has to be an apostle because that's the top-notch ministry right there. So he casts the vision like a spell that ensnares the people who must follow and give their support to the senior leader. And that sounds, even to my own ears right now, to be a bit of an exaggeration, but unfortunately I don't think it is. But that's not how it worked. As these men took it upon themselves, this missionary journey was, 
uh, somewhere around 1,300 miles on land and, and, and about the same amount on sea. This was not a short trip. This is the ancient world, 3,000 3, miles of travel they took upon themselves. And they're trying to go somewhere and they keep getting pushback from the Lord. Paul has a vision. He explains it to them and they say, we're going to Macedonia. Well, they did have Roman roads and transportation, so it's a little bit easier than the Oregon Trail, but about the same distance. A little bit easier than the Oregon Trail, but the main path that they take once they get here uh, is a Roman military road paved in marble. There was a corporate interpretation of an apostolic dream. That's what I want to bring to light in Acts 16.10. That that body of believers came together and in unity decided on what the interpretation of that dream was. What you, don't, what you don't get from this verse was, Paul woke up in the morning and said, Guys, I have a vision. I need you to follow me because I have the vision for this mission and we're going to Macedonia. Are you with me or against me? You didn't get that kind of verbiage. They, they, remember, concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel to the Macedonians. All right? Then we move on to the church planted in Philippi. Now, I know we're talking about Corinth, but, but this history is important. For you to understand Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church, it's, it's helpful to understand what he went through to get there. So they get to Philippi. That's Acts 16, verses 11 through 40. And Philippi is that town right there. You see Philippi on the map? And that's a major center in in Macedonia, Thessalonica is, is really the governing city of that area, but Philippi, pretty substantial. This is where Lydia is converted. There's not enough Jewish men there to found a synagogue, but there are, there are Jewish people who gather by a river to pray. And Paul goes there. The Lord opens Lydia's heart. She's converted. She invites them to her house. They begin to congregate there. As, they, as Paul ventures to the river and back, a girl, it says, that has a spirit of divination, a spirit of divination, or a python spirit, keeps saying, these men show us the way of the Most High God. And it's, and it's irritating, Paul and the Spirit. And so he kicks the demon out. She's a slave, and she's a fortune teller. Now some cultural context. It's a python spirit. The python was a, one of these uh, underworld chaotic gods that in Greek mythology, Apollo killed. And Apollo is considered, among other things in Greek mythology, as one of the gods who's in charge of prophecy. And if I remember my little study this morning, this python guarded the or oracle site at Delphi. And in the myth, Apollo kills it with one or a hundred arrows from his quiver and takes over and proclaims himself as the god over Delphi. Delphi was a place where they kept, uh, in essence, girls who were exposed to the chemical fumes that were coming up from the earth there at Delphi. They were kind of bombed out of their head. And then they would utter ecstatic things that were interpreted as prophetic utterances, and you had people that were devoted to this kind of a thing in the region, this girl being one of them, had this demonic presence uh, that was allowing her to do fortune-telling for her masters. Well, Paul delivers her. 
which makes her masters go broke, which makes her masters, I mean, not go broke, but lose their income from a slave girl. And they pull him in front of the magistrates. The magistrates are upset. They arrest and beat and imprison Paul and Silas. This involves pulling them into the marketplace, stripping them naked, and beating them with rods that are tied together, and then putting them in the inner prison and affixing their feet to stocks. So they're uncomfortable, they're bloody, and their response is to praise and worship the Lord. And as they're praising and worshiping the Lord, and mind you, what I, I just I think what kind of report I would put on Facebook today if I went on a short-term mission trip and they canceled my flight and the food on the next flight was bad and the, the tourist place I wanted to go to on day three was closed, what kind of complaining I might do as an affluent American on a short-term tourist missions trip. And I'm convicted. Here these men uh, risk their lives to go into foreign lands to preach the gospel and they get beaten and imprisoned and their response is not complaint but praise. And as they're praising, there's an earthquake, the prison opens, their shackles are broken free. Paul receives revelation with regard to the a jailer and tells him, don't kill yourself. And the jailer... Yeah, because it's dark there. Yeah. The jailer gets saved, his household gets saved, Paul and Silas, they get cleaned up and cleansed, and then Paul kind of drops the next nugget. Oh, by the way, we're Roman citizens. See, <laughs> and they beat us. I, I, if, if memory serves, and I could be a little off on this, but, but Philippi is a Roman colony and had received charter from Rome to not only be a Roman colony, but Italian city. Citizens of Philippi had full access to Roman rights, free men. Well, Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. Guess what you can't do with a Roman citizen? You can't arrest and strip and beat them without a trial. They have right to direct appeal to the emperor himself. And these magistrates rule at the pleasure of the emperor. So if you've just taken a Roman citizen and pulled them in and beaten them and put them in prison, Without a trial. Without a trial. Things aren't looking good for you. So they do... Your life would be in the prison. Yeah, your life would be in prison. So they do what, what any self-respecting uh, city leader would do. They said, hey, uh, we're sorry, please just kind of leave quietly and, and we won't, you know, you know, hey, no harm, no foul. And, and Paul says, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. You took us and you publicly humiliated us and... Quote unquote. I mean, the side story here is is that you you publicly humiliated the gospel. Some rectification needs to be made. I think you need to give us a public escort out of town. How about that? How about we do that? And they go, oh, okay. And Paul says, yeah, but not tomorrow. I want to hang out a bit. So he hangs out with the church a bit, and they uh, they're set free, and they go on. So that's Philippi. Now you know. Turn to the book of Philippians. Right? Philippians in your Bible? Yeah. That's the letter to the church at Philippi. This is when it, when it got founded. They move on to Thessalonica and Berea. So you see that I've circled Thessalonica and Berea, so they're following this road. They're going through. And they minister there. They minister in Thessalonica for three weeks, 
and then rioting ensues. <laughs> so he's there. He goes to the synagogue for three weeks. There's rioting in town. Uh, Jason, who's one of the converts, he gets dragged out of his house with others, and they pull him in front of the magistrates. Paul and Silas go on to Berea. So they don't, they're not able to capture Paul and Silas. Part of the accusation is they're, you know, they're promoting Jesus as king in essence. They are presenting what in the Roman Empire is a subversive message and makes them enemies of the state. So not only in proclaiming Jesus as the Jewish and global Messiah, not only in accepting Gentiles into their meeting and proclaiming Jesus as king, his message, though liberating and saving, upsets all the power structures. It upsets those who have power in the pagan temples. It upsets the Jewish community who is not ready to embrace Jesus as Messiah. And it's an affront to the state that runs an empire of peace through force of sword and cross. The message keeps upsetting power tables because he's on the throne, amen? So, but in, in this house arrest, when they go in there and drag these people out of the house church that Jason is hosting, Paul and Silas aren't there, and, and the saints kind of say, hey, why don't you skiddle down, down the coast a bit? They go to Berea. Berea is a resort town, and it has more affluent people there. In any event, these are more literate people, and he's able to minister there. But then Thessalonican Jews come down to Berea and start causing problems. And so Paul has to move on, and he goes to Athens. Paul goes to Athens. Timothy and Silas stay behind. And Paul's kind of like, hey, you need, to, you need to get out of town. So know what's happened to Paul. He's trying to be obedient to Jesus, and he's trying to push into new territory. And, and the Holy Spirit says, no, nah, don't go there. And then the Spirit of Jesus says, don't go there. And they get to the coast of Troas. They're on the edge of the region they can't reach. And a vision of the night says, go to Macedonia. And they all agree. We've, we've got this vision. We're supposed to preach in Macedonia. And he get, he's in Macedonia. He goes to Philippi. He gets publicly beaten and imprisoned. He goes to Thessalonica. He gets run out of town. He goes to Berea. He gets chased by the Jews. He winds up in Athens. <laughs> so he's in Athens. And Athens, and I've circled Athens. You see Athens there on that coast? Now, Athens, I don't know if you've studied much about ancient Greece, but Athens should, you know, stand out large. It's a free city-state, the center of philosophy, uh, philosophy, you know, Socrates and, and uh, what's the other guy? Uh, Aristotle and all these guys, you know. Athens, in my mind, Athens was huge, but Athens is, is maybe a tenth of the size of Corinth. Big cultural impact. University town, okay? And he, so he's in Athens, and... He finds, it says in Acts 17, uh, 16, that he finds the city full of idols. Now notice Paul's evangelistic approach. He's being agitated in the spirit. He's recognizing they're given over to idolatry, but he centers on a tribute or a plaque to the unknown God. There, there was a, and I, I, the, the history escapes me right now, but basically there was a plague 
in Athens, and all the gods they appealed to, the plague kept going. And so they said, there must be some god we don't know that's causing this problem. Let's sacrifice to them. Let's sacrifice to him. So they sacrificed to this god they didn't know, and the plague stopped. So here Paul shows up. He sees all these, all these idols and the whole city giving... So he's pained. Why? Because he knows they're lost. They're lost to principalities and powers. Dispossessed sons of God from the divine council rebelled against the Father that now Jesus has ascended over. They don't have to follow these gods anymore. They're free in Jesus, remember? And so he says, hey, you know this unknown God that delivered your city before? Let me tell you about him. And he uses and cites Greek poets witnessing to the Greeks. That's later in the testimony. So he's using connection points. He's using his brain to connect with people in their culture to expound the good news of Jesus the Messiah to them. It's a worthy endeavor. So Paul reasons in the synagogue weekly, I imagine, and in the marketplace daily, the scripture itself says, Preaching Jesus in the resurrection to any who came by, basically. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Well, he's preaching the resurrection. He's in Athens, he's in Greece, and there's this particular brand of Greek dualism that in essence thinks that there's nothing, really all that matters in man is the spirit. What, what you think, the thoughts you hold have higher importance than the things you do. In other words, you're free to do as you please. Because morality isn't a matter of your physical activity. It's a matter of your mental activity. Well, does that sound like a false doctrine? That's a false doctrine. And so there's this embracing of, in this culture, of the spiritual above and beyond the physical. So when he starts speaking about a physical resurrection... Well, all the wise people say that all that matters are the real, true spiritual forms. What is spiritually true? What even Eastern religion goes after this thing of being, you know, to push completely into the spirit realm and divest yourself of the body. Guess what? God puts you in a body. God will resurrect you in a body, and you will live forever in a body. Praise God. Because you're human. Thank you. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So he begins to preach the resurrection, and they uh, they get a hold of him and take him to the Arapagus. The, the, uh, what's that called? The Arapagus. Um, and, the, and the King James, I think it's called Mars Hill or whatever. And, and they ask him to present his new teaching. Now understand, even though you know some commentators say this wasn't a trial that they really wanted to hear, but really, his exposition at the Arapagus is not without risk. Understand that Socrates lost his case there centuries before. And he was commanded by the Athens Council to kill himself. <laughs> so he had to drink hemlock and be done with his school. So it, it's, just think of the pressure. You know, you've been, you've been out street witnessing. You know, you, maybe you have a little pop-up stand and you're selling hot dogs and people are coming by. Hey, what do you want on your hot dog? You want sauerkraut? I tell you what... Sour is good for the food, but bad for the heart. You ever heard about Jesus? Make your life sweet. I mean, you're just preaching the gospel. Anyone who comes by. And the next thing you know, the police come by and say, look, uh, city council wants to see you. And they drag you to city hall with all the council members 
and and their staff, and they say, okay, tell us what you really think about who runs the world. Be a little pressure involved, wouldn't there? You know, it's not without risk, is what I'm saying. So he gets done. Absolutely. Yeah. So he gets done. So he's been beaten down the coast. He's been hauled in front of the authorities. And so he leaves Athens and he arrives in Corinth. Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, and recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. So this is Paul arriving in Corinth. He's working his trade, tent maker, leather worker. There, the Isthmian Games uh, were, were second only to the Olympic Games in terms of a sports attraction. It happens twice a year. Part of the Isthmian Games involved rhetoric competitions, speeches. So speech and rhetoric and were, were highly prized in Corinthian culture. And this is where he arrives. He comes in there. I want you to see his attitude of heart. Later, when he writes this Corinthian congregation, when they're having a conflict, their conflict is with Paul. He's writing to them, and in 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 1, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. No joke. There's a current picture of the super spiritual dude or gal who gets a vision from God and goes does the work. And it's like, the devil's not going to stop me. And no, I have peace. So I sat down. I got the peace of God. I know I'm doing the right thing. You know, nothing's, nothing's happened to me. I have no fear here. Fears of the devil. I was with you in much weakness, fear, and trembling. Well, why do you think that is? You think that Paul, yeah, you think that Paul is above being traumatized by being violated? He has been beaten across the entire peninsula. You ever been in a riot? Ever been in stocks? No. You know, ever been in stocks? <laughs> ever been in an actual fight, a physical confrontation? Yeah. It's traumatizing enough. Yeah. Let alone when a whole crowd beats on you. So yeah, he's scared. He's distraught. He's like, let's just talk about Jesus and him. That is his, this is where he was when he showed up. Note though that in this letter he's writing them. He said, look, I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. That's, a, that's an important theme when we get to the Corinthian epistle. So, some Corinthian factoids, okay? Corinth. Now, you know, uh, turn to the book 1 Corinthians. You know, 2 Corinthians is a city they built later. No, <laughs> it's, it's two letters, right? To the same city. So, it, it helps. Now, I'm, I'm telling you, this is just, I, I just, facts confront my brain. So, in my brain, Athens is this, 
you know, it, Greece has two cities, Sparta and Athens, and that's it, you know? And they all, they're all huge in my brain because they take up so much story space. But I think Athens was something like 60,000 people. Okay? Here's a little snapshot of Corinth in the day of Paul. He's there uh, somewhere between, in the, in, the, in the frame of 50 to 53 AD in that region. Okay? And we know that because of who's in charge of that region when he's there. So we have historical verification of the date, at least of a part of his time there. With me? In Paul's day, the estimated population of Corinth was approximately 250,000 free people and 400,000 slaves. That is a community of 600,000 people. That's a lot of humanity. You want some perspective on that? Imagine, imagine Chesapeake was a free city that was served by the entire slave population of Virginia Beach. And that, that kind of gives you uh, the perspective of the balance of the society and the size of it. Okay? What kind of social structures, what kind of social uh, problems would there be? If you take... See, we read the Scripture and we say, when we read there's no longer uh, slave nor free, and we think, yeah, okay, great. But think about the social structures. The Roman Empire was supported by slavery. It ran by slavery. And your status as a freeman was much higher than that of a slave. And now you're being confronted by a truth that says you're in the same, in the community of heaven, you are of the same social status, accepted in the beloved, blood-bought by Jesus Christ. You're no better than the slave. And slave, you're no worse than the master. That's a mind-bent. But look at the population he's talking to. It's the chief city of Greece. It's a commercial city. It's right on that isthmus of Greece. And so goods flowing from the east come through and, and they can be carted across that four and a half mile isthmus. It now has a canal. I saw a picture on Google. But they, it can be carted across that isthmus and loaded on and taken west. Goods from the west, Spain and Italy can come through and go east. Very prosperous city. Uh, a very cosmopolitan city, a very religious city. There, there's been archaeological evidence of at least 12 different temples there. Whether they were all operational in Paul's day is not known, but there were three major temples, and they were to Aphrodite, who in Greek mythology was the goddess of love, Asclepius, who in Greek mythology was the god of healing, and Apollo, who... And Greek mythology was the god, among other things, of prophecy and knowledge. Now, if you're familiar with the letter to the church at Corinth, do the themes of love, healing, prophecy, and knowledge come up at all in the letter to the Corinthian church? Well, my, I think they do. I think they do. Well, Aphrodite, as having a major temple there, meant that... Uh, Sacred prostitution, I say sacred with air quotes, was there. About maybe as many as a thousand prostitutes served that temple. This city was a center for open and unbridled immorality. For the region and in the day, a con if you, you know, uh, polite parlance, if you would, if you said, well, she's a Corinthian girl, what you meant was she was a prostitute. 
And if you were going to Corinthianize, that meant you were going to be involved in fornication. So their, their immorality was so well known as to be proverbial. Why, do, does sexual immorality get any ink in the letter to the, the Corinthians? I think it does. Social class, love, sexual purity, prophecy, knowledge, all of these issues are exhibited inside the Corinthian church. And, and they bubble up from the culture that many of these people grew up in and lived in. And note that he ministered to Jews and Greeks. And so the congregation he's writing is a mixed congregation. Which means that when we read that writing, we can't just look at it through a Jewish lens or just through a Gentile lens. We need to be able to see it as an address to one body. Jew-Gentile, one body. Right? Acts 18, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, no, we talked about triggers earlier, you know. <laughs> he got triggered. When they opposed and reviled him, what do, you think he, what do you think he thinks is coming? He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named uh, Tertius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next, to the next door to the synagogue. So even the largest, most affluent houses might have been able to host 50 to 60 people. There's evidence within the letter to the Corinthian church that you have the church at Corinth, which is the entire church, and different house churches. And then he talks about when you all come together. If the gathering place is Gaius Titius's house, that gives you some sort of an idea of the size of congregation that Paul is ministering to. About the size of a church that you've seen in your own lifetime in its different manifestations here in this house. 50 to 20 to 10 people. Okay? So, the Jews react negatively to the message. He says, you've been, you've been told Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to go teach the Gentiles. Look at Acts 18. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Boy, what a comfort. Yeah, I guess. What a comfort. He shows up in fear and weakness and trembling. He's getting this opposition from the synagogue. You can imagine he's feeling this thing coming, and the Lord appears to him and says, Hey, it's okay. I got you. This is part of the back reverberation of when he talks about in 2 Corinthians 12 about Jesus saying, hey, my grace is sufficient for you. See, Jesus' grace was sufficient enough for Paul when he was beaten and in prison in Philippi as it was when he was left alone to minister in Corinth. Same Jesus, same grace. He'll carry you through the ease and he'll carry you through the hard. You cannot interpret the blessing of God by the circumstance. 
You cannot accept a gospel that says the gospel is you being an easy circumstance. That the promise of Jesus is, is that you are continually in absolute prosperity, absolute health, absolute goodness. That's not the gospel and it's not reality. The gospel is, is that Jesus has you regardless of what the world tries to do to you and regardless of what he asks of you when you go reach the world. He not only empowers us in the plenty, he empowers us in the want. And he not only gives us the power to do miracles, but also gives us the grace to die for them if necessary. It's the same in power. We've forgotten the message of sacrifice. That's the problem. But here Jesus gives this comforting word. That's a comforting word. Amen. Hey, it's okay. So look what he does. He stays a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. This is our background for when we go into the list in 1 Corinthians. When we start examining word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and these different gifts, tongues, prophecy, interpretation, gifts of healing, miracles, all these things that he talked to the Corinthian church about, we need to understand in light of the church he's ministering to and the people he's writing to. They're not an unknown ingredient to him. You know, Romans wasn't a church that he founded. That's a group of people he wanted to go to. Corinth is a church he founded that he's writing and they're having a discussion with. So, Lord willing, next we meet, we'll look at some of the, an overview of Corinthians as a letter and hopefully what is meant by the word of wisdom as a charismata of the Lord. Amen? So, if, 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 the, if the Lord doesn't come in the meantime, we'll be here next week. Right, right. And if, and, and if, he, if he comes before next week, then we'll all know anyway. <laughs> Praise God. Amen.